This is CliffCentral.com. Welcome to the Understanding Cancer Podcast, a series of key conversations that bring together all you need to know about cancer, empowering you with information and knowledge. This 10 podcast series is brought to you by Discovery. My name is Sonia Booth. Each week we chat to some of the country's foremost experts in the fields of health and wellness for cancer prevention, as well as in cancer treatment. We are bringing you fascinating insights relevant to every person out there. Our ninth episode focuses on healthy living during and beyond cancer treatment. Today, I am in conversation with Sue Cerebro, a physiotherapist and certified complex lymphedema therapist. I am also joined by Michelle Dasnevs, a biokineticist operating at a pediatric center assisting patients affected by cancer. And also with us is Annika Rust, a registered dietitian working at the Breast Care Center of Excellence at Nedcare Mulpark Hospital. Ladies, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to be switching between nutrition, exercise, overall well-being, and obviously your different uh, roles in how you assist um, patients. Annika, I'll start with you. Yes. 80 to 90% of the people you see are oncology patients. Am I I correct? Yes, that's correct. So now tell us about the the, the nutritional uh, therapy, you know, its role uh, for cancer treatments um, in in, in particular, survivorship and even palliation, optimal nutrition. um, I'm sure it's a a no-brainer. It it can enhance the, the, the healing process. Absolutely. If we firstly look at nutrition, it plays an important role in the development of cancer because we do know dietary content. Um, compounds can modify your carcinogen metabolism, modify your cell, um, cellular host defense, your cell signaling pathways, your cell differentiation, and of course tumor growth. So therefore, adequate nutrition can make a remarkable difference in improving your treatment as well as your um, survivorship and even play a part in palliation. Um, so yes, absolutely crucial. Um, secondly, I think it's important to know that it all depends on your your type of tumor, where's the location, your grade, your stage, and then of course the type of um, treatment you do receive. If it's, for instance, chemo or is it radiation, um, and of course it can influence your digestion, your absorption, um, and your metabolism of food. And this will, of course, influence the severity of nutrition-related symptoms, such as nausea, vomiting, changes in taste, smell, bowel changes, um, pain, fatigue. So, yes, absolutely crucial. And Sue, as a physiotherapist, how do you support the patients in their journey during and after cancer treatment? So... They're very different components to each. I think the aim throughout should be to support the patient physically as well as emotionally. You can't do one without the other because there is a direct link between the two. So if your emotions are good and your emotions are strong, then you're going to be in a better 
state of well-being which is going to facilitate healing. If you're uptight about it and negative about it and you don't have much hope, then you're going to be in a sympathetic state, a state for fright, flight and fight, which is going to cause an increase in adrenaline levels. And that's not a healing state to be in. So we support the patient both physically as well as emotionally. My treatment involves a lot of touch. And we all know that as soon as you touch someone, barriers drop and the patients feel far more, well, shall I say, far less vulnerable and far more safe. And that trust is a crucial part in healing because that instills hope as well. So that brings in the two aspects again. A lot of patients who are going undergoing cancer treatment feel incredibly vulnerable. And there's this old, not a myth, but this old thought that, you know, if you have cancer, it might be contagious. If you have a tumor that's opened, well, you know, you don't want to touch it. You might catch it. And people are f- afraid if they've never gone through cancer of cancer patients. How do I touch them? How do I deal with them? How do I communicate with them? A simple human touch can make such a difference, right? I had a patient, for example, who was undergoing chemotherapy, very aggressive therapy. He was in hospital. So you can imagine already being in hospital in a bed. You perhaps in a private room, so you the patient in Ward 7, you're not Mr. Whoever. And there he was lying in his hospital gown, not in his own pajamas, being very ill. And I was called to go treat him. So just imagine how vulnerable and alone he must have been how alone he must have felt. And as I was chatting to myself, introducing myself and chatting about giving, getting a bit of a history from him, I just put my hands on his feet very gently, very softly. And I looked up at his face and the tears were just welling up. He said to me, you know, in the two weeks that I've been here, no one has touched me. Wow. And yes, they touched to put a blood pressure cuff on or you know, take their temperature or put, you know, infuse him through the port or whatever. But no one had actually touched him. And that experience just changed further treatment. And he started doing so much better. So for me, it's not all about exercise, but it's also about communicating, touching and trusting and supporting them very holistically. When I treat a patient, it's never just an arm, a breast, a leg, an abdomen or whatever. I try my best to adopt a very holistic approach. Sure. So from beginning to end, from when they first diagnosed to later on in life, when they've survived and they're fulfilling their life, they also need support and guarantee that they're doing well and in lots of encouragement. The impact of the right physical therapy for cancer patients is not to be underestimated. And you all have complementary roles. Michelle, what role does a biokineticist play in promoting a healthy lifestyle during cancer treatment and beyond? I get this question a lot (laughs) because people are always asking what is the difference between a physiotherapist and a biokineticist. The way I explain it to patients is that we don't do any manual therapy of any sort. So there's no massaging, there's no lymph drainage, there's no needling, no none of that. We particularly play a role in 
the physical activity and we're using physical activity in all its modalities, whether it be stretching or kalinetics or something like yoga or Pilates or even hydrotherapy, to improve their current physical state, maintain whatever function they have and try and promote um, wellness. You know, we want to improve their quality of life. And we also work very closely with patients' goals. So when a patient comes in, whether it's you know, during a cancer treatment or after, we always look at macro and macro goals. So what are they not able to do or what would they like to be doing? And we kind of work with that because each patient is an individual and we have to treat them as such. You know, it doesn't matter if you've got 10 patients with the same type of cancer or have had the same type of treatment, they're still an individual person. So we look at them individually and then we use that to facilitate whatever it is they'd like to do, whether it's bending over and tying their shoe, for example, or getting their bra strip on and actually tying their bra like they used to tie it, um, you know, things like that. So that's where we play role is we're improving their activities of daily living and their quality of life through physical movement, which in itself is really beautiful to see um, someone come in limping and kind of, you know, walk out a couple of months later. It's really fulfilling. Let's turn to the issue of nutrition during cancer treatment. I am sure it's very important to give individualized advice, but Annika, can you share any useful tips that apply generally? It's absolutely crucial to give individualized advice because everybody's different. It all depends on the type of cancer and the stage and your treatment. And if you look at your energy and protein needs, you need more protein to repair the tissue that's been damaged, for instance, by chemotherapy. And if you don't have enough energy intake, it will actually also um, break down your lean body mass or your basically your muscle mass. It's so crucial to make sure that you've got adequate protein and energy intake. And just to mention, your especially your protein and your energy intake can either be slightly increased or it can even be more than double your normal intake. So if you look at... You're a cancer patient. They don't feel well to start off with. So they do experience nausea and vomiting and fatigue. And they don't feel like eating. So yes, um, if you consume less than your normal needs and now you've got all of the sudden increased needs, um, the risk to lose weight is so much higher. And therefore it's absolutely crucial that each bite should be nutritious you can't um i can't stress it more enough how important it is to look at your diet especially during chemo and during radiation and afterwards as well because then we have to look at survivorship and we need to look at prevention so absolutely crucial so when when it comes to exercise during cancer treatment where is it advised? Where is it contraindicated? Is it for everybody or do you also now have to analyze each case? Okay, so it's quite interesting. During cancer treatment and after cancer treatment, exercise is never contraindicated because our bodies are mechanisms, machines made for movement. And as soon as you slow do- down, your body stops functioning correct, in, uh, correctly. Your metabolism slows down. So it's important to assess the patient, see what their requirements are, and modify the exercise accordingly. So, for example, 
if the patient is undergoing chemotherapy and they're very weak and maybe they're having high-dose chemo and they're in the ward in the hospital, just teaching them simple breathing exercises are very, very important. And the hub, the CBD of the lymphatic system sits within the abdomen. And just by getting them to do deep breathing, they're stimulating their whole lymphatic circulatory system. But deep breathing for them can also instill a lot of relaxation with, uh, in them. So if they're feeling uptight and anxious, just doing that simple deep breathing can relax them and start promoting an aspect of healing. The patient is assessed individually and the patient is then given a treatment plan according to their needs. There are not contraindications, but we modify the treatment. For example, if you have had breast cancer and you've had surgery, for the first two weeks, you not to lift your arm higher than shoulder level because that will cause destruction of the lymphatic system in your armpit and create what we call axillary webbing, which is a very painful syndrome that occurs where you get lymphostasis, stasis of the lymph, lymph fluid within the lymphatic vessels. And they reach a stage where they cannot move their arm. It's so incredibly painful. I think it's important when they're feeling weak, undergoing chemotherapy, that they're giving, given simple exercises besides the breathing, obviously as much as they can, to keep their circulation going and to keep the muscle bulk going, because the more you lie down, the more you weaken. And in order to strengthen and get out of that stage of being on the bed and progressing, you need to keep fit. I am sure that exercise plays an even more important role in people whose treatment has ended, both for people in remission and those who are terminally ill. As far as once they are in remission... It is important to get the patient back as much as possible to their previous fitness. And obviously that's assessed on a very individual basis. It takes 50% longer to go back, to revert back to your previous fitness post uh, pre-diagnosis. So if it took you six months to reach a specific fitness level, you, it will take you now nine months. At this stage, I don't think that we can really admit the terminally ill patient in this discussion. We mustn't forget them. Exercise is crucial from a point of view to continue to instill self-confidence in them, to get their circulation going, to keep them as strong and independent as possible. That's most important. And to prevent complications like bed sores, um, pneumonia, etc. And that can also apply to a very weak patient who's undergoing chemotherapy and is confined to bed, like a high-dose chemo with acute myeloid leukemia, for example, where the patients become quite mowed down. We mustn't forget those patients either. We've got to prevent secondary complications and comorbidities that can occur. So we've got to keep them as healthy as possible from the time of diagnosis right to the very end, post-diagnosis forever. Absolutely. And then now, um, Michelle, does, does the type of cancer play a role in, in, in your approach as a, as a bio? And if so, can you, can you give examples? Yes. Um, the reason being, like I said, we assess each patient individually. So that's, that's really imperative is that each person is an individual. Um, and even when they walk in, I don't call them my patients. By the time the patient comes to see us, it's out of hospital. 
So I don't want them to feel like they're back there. I want this to be like a happier place. So everything has to be very dynamic and very fluid. So first of all, it's very much based, yes, on the type of cancer, what stage they're in, what treatment was done. You know, if they've had radiation or chemo um, or if they've had, you know, a catheter, for example, it really depends on that. Um, also, if there were any surgeries or any incisions, I'll explain kind of a little bit later on that as well. And also what medications they're on as well as the side effects of those medications. But the big thing is actually the patient's emotional and mental state when they walk in. So sometimes they'll walk in and they're really having a good day and we can do quite a bit. And other times they'll be quite depressed and down. So each patient is so individual and their personality and their mood and how they've coped with the situation. But for example, let's say I'll give you something that's kind of probably very prevalent at the moment is the breast cancer discussions. So for example, someone who's had leukemia and someone who's had breast cancer, we will look at, you know, the incision for the breast cancer, for example, they won't be able to lift their arm up above 90 degrees, like Sue said. Whereas if someone's had abdominal cancer and they've had an incision in the abdomen, we wouldn't do any core-based exercises or any trunk flexion as in bending over or rotation of the, the trunk at that particular stage. You know, it also depends on how well the incisions have healed. You know, so once you give the patient the appropriate amount of time to pass that acute stage and they've done their physio, you know, then we kind of have a little bit more free reign. We'll be able to do more activities with them. Um, yeah, you know, obviously your, your patients that are in palliative care, we're a lot more gentle with them. You know, we're doing more kind of range of motion and we're just giving them some confidence. We're making them feel like they actually still have a purpose in life and they can still do things versus the patient who had a tumor that was removed and now just needs strengthening because they weakened in hospital. They had some atrophy. It's really dependent on each person and it's important that each practitioner looks at that patient individually. Sue, uh, you wanted to add something? Yeah, just that, you know, I think that generally thoughts have changed. Previously, patients being treated for any kind of chronic disease was told by the consulting physician, no, you, must ex- you mustn't exercise, you must rest. But in latter years, they've proven, proven that cardiovascular exercise is incredibly important for any chronicity, any chronic condition. Because what happens is when you have nerve transmission, as the impulse, the nerve impulse hops from one part of the nerve to the next, that what we call a synapse where the two are connected, there's a broth, a soupy broth, a fluid filled with adrenaline and noradrenaline that facilitates the nerve conduction. And when you have a chronic condition, the fluid around that area is a little bit too thick. It's like a thick pea soup. And that's going to halt nerve transmission, adequate, you know, adequate nerve con- transmission. As soon as you introduce cardiovascular exercise, that improves the fluid. It circulates fluid in your body. So it improves that the condition around that synapse. So you get better nerve transmission. Any patient who has a chronic condition definitely needs to be treated with some kind of cardiovascular exercise. And even while the patients are having radiotherapy, for example, they should do moderate exercise. You should always be up and about as much as you possibly can, as long as, as much as your body permits you to. As I said, your body's made for movement, and that's, I think, a huge message. Absolutely. I want to add to um, Sue and Michelle. Um, 
Very importantly, if I do see patients, is I monitor if you lose some weight, do you actually lose muscle mass or do you lose mm. your fat mass? Absolutely. And mm. I would always encourage them to start exercising in some form and refer them to a biokineticist or a physiotherapist because I can actually assist them starting slowly and increasing gradually and you can you can actually see the difference in muscle mass and you, and yes i know from a diet point of view your intake is absolutely crucial but if you look at your metabolism and recovery if you do um um as well but if you do actually add exercising it makes the recovery so much easier and it makes it much more easier to actually not to lose your muscle mass. It's not always easy for patients on oncology treatment to eat correctly, as they may not feel like eating at all. So, yes, we do need to take in consideration that every day you will experience different nutrition-related side effects. And it's really, it's unpredictable. Some days you'll feel up to it and other days not. And that's what you need to work with. You need to work with how they do differ from each day. And I usually say, if you look at your um, intake, always make sure that each bite is nutritious. So, for instance, make sure that you do actually move away from um, refined and processed foods and especially takeaways like pizzas and hamburgers and chips and chocolates and all the baked goodies. All the delicious stuff. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, not to, not to completely avoid... I, everything's got a place in life, I believe. But if you look at recovery, you really want to make sure that you get enough energy and that you get enough protein and fruits and vegetables. So therefore, I always say, make sure if you dish up, you don't have to follow a strict plan. But just to take in consideration that if you do dish up, half a plate should be non-starchy vegetables, quarter plate at least protein, and the other quarter starchy vegetables or starches and i would always encourage everybody to opt for the starchy vegetables than for the starches um and then of course very important um make sure that i add the two to two three fruits and at least two to three dairy products because dairy is high in calcium and in protein yes you don't feel like eating i understand but there's such easy ways for instance in the in the winter time there's soups and in the summertime there's smoothies where you can easily blend together a cup of fruit a cup of yogurt some vanilla and ice we do have to look at your increased energy and um, protein intake so yes life like i said you don't always feel up to eating and Sometimes you need to eat what you do enjoy because you need to heal. <laughs> so, yes, that's in a nutshell. So, why it's absolutely crucial to add exercising to your diet because you want to make sure that you are not going to lose muscle mass and that you're actually going to build muscle and that you're going to lose the bad visceral fat around your internal organs. And, yeah, very important. Michelle, go for it. Yeah. So when we do our assessment on the patient, we usually do a fitness assessment of some sort. And the fitness assessment is based on their current function. So, you know, the very fit person versus the, you know, someone who, who's coming in a wheelchair would be very different. 
but we're assessing their cardiovascular fitness, which is really important, and their heart rate. But it, it's also really interesting that the cardiovascular fitness is sometimes difficult to monitor at home because their heart rate responses are altered because of the medication. Um, and some of the side effects of the medication does, you know, cause changes to their cardiovascular system. So we do educate patients on that and then work on what they've come in with versus then, you know, your textbook application of those heart rate equations. Um, we're also looking at their strength, their range of motion, their flexibility, and um, their body composition, which is so important. And it's so great to see how patients will come in with a certain mass and, for example, maintain that mass throughout the whole process. But at the end, their body composition is completely changed. Their exactly. posture is completely mm-hmm. changed. Um, you know, they're, they're, they stand taller. Their, their clothes fit better. They've, like you say, they've lost that little bit of visceral, you know, adipose tissue or fat that they have around their abdomen. Um, yeah, so I think it's it's so important that we're part of this process and we all work together. I think the nutrition part is so important too because, like you say, if they're exercising and they're burning those calories but they're not getting that nutrition in, then they're actually atrophying um, and they're just eating that muscle mass. I always say it's not about a general um, reading on a scale. It's mm. all about how you feel um, and about actually what you've achieved. Um, muscle weighs much more than fat. So it's not about weighing less. It's about Agreed. being healthy. And I always say thin doesn't mean healthy. It's all about looking at your holistically, about your total well, your overall well-being. And that's why it's absolutely crucial if you do assess somebody and you pick up, oh, my goodness gracious me, this patient is not sleeping or um, so they've got side effects from their medication to actually notify a doctor or who they actually who are seeing. Or if you do pick up, they're not emotionally well to refer to a psychologist. So it's absolutely important that you don't only look at your field. Because everything works together. If you are not emotionally where you should be, you're not going to make progress with regards to nutrition. If you look at well-being and you look at healing, you need to look holistically and you need to at least address everything. I agree. I agree. So sometimes, you know, when we're doing the assessment, we also look at who else the patient has seen. So we just check in and ask them, you know, have you seen your counselor, your psychologist? Have you been to your physio? Have you been to your dietitian? Are you checking in with your specialist? I think that's also important that patients are constantly reminded that they need their team. Um, It's almost like they're a little athlete, you know, and they've got this surrounded by this team that's there to support them. And so, yeah, just a couple of things to add. So the important thing when it comes to breast cancer is that if you have a HER2 positive breast cancer, you have a drug, um, called Herceptin, which is actually not a chemotherapy, it's a protein-based drug, fine fusions, and the dose is about eight, is 18 every third week. So it takes you quite far into being post-chemo, um, radiation, uh, surgery, etc. But the important thing with the Herceptin is that it does affect you from a cardiac perspective. So all patients that are put onto Herceptin as well as who have breast cancer and have um, AC, a combination of two chemotherapy drugs, they have a cardiac baseline assessment. And that's important when you're exercising your patients to be aware of it, that their heart rate shouldn't increase above a certain amount, etc. So it's important, it's vital to know what medication they are on. It's important if you're choosing to exercise, not to go and 
over-exercise once a day. What's much more important is to break your exercise regime down into little bits more frequently. So instead of going to walk, for example, for an hour and be absolutely exhausted afterwards, rather take that down to 20 minutes thrice a day. The importance of exercise to me also is to build up self-confidence. I always tell my patients, try it because you'll see you can do it. And when you can see you can do it and you feel safe, you're going to feel much better. And so women who have had a, a, a mastectomy, for example, should they stay away from certain um, exercise forms? The only thing that they should, activity that they should avoid for two weeks post-surgically is lifting their arm up further than 90 degrees. Okay, so if you put your arm out to your side, it should be a nice 90 degree angle or in front of you. We actually start exercise immediately post-operatively. So from day one, you start. Start with deep breathing exercise. If they've had a long anesthetic, for example, a mastectomy with immediate reconstruction, they've had long anesthesia. So you also check their breathing that they're not going to get a chest infection. So that's a bit preventative. And also, depending on the kind of muscle flap they have, they might get a little bit of restriction in their breathing. It might be a bit painful if they worked on the muscles around the ribs, around the the lungs. So you want to continue to encourage them to move as much as possible. When we treat the post-breast cancer patients, we start immediately with simple exercises like neck movements because you don't realize you've had surgery, it's painful, you guard that area and you stiffen up. So you hold your shoulder close to your body, you bring your neck down to that side towards your shoulder, your ear towards your shoulder. You're going to guard it. You want to protect it. It's precious. So we encourage them to straight away start doing neck movements and shoulder movements. We treat away from the area to encourage the patient to get ultimately to the area and move it. And while I've got you on, 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 on that subject, I mean, tell us about the role of a correctly fitted breast prosthesis and a bra as well. Okay, so that's my <laughs> pet passion. The most rewarding part of my work is when you have a patient coming in who's had a mastectomy and they are just so self-conscious about it. They're trying to cope emotionally with the diagnosis and the treatment thereof. And now they have this complete distortion to their body. So it is vital that we fit them for many reasons, from an emotional and a physical point of view with a breast prosthesis and a bra that fits them correctly. I had a patient who came in with her mum who was, she wasn't referred by a doctor. She had heard that I um, fit patients with bras and prostheses. And she wanted to buy her mother a Christmas present. She said to her mom, Mom, this was two years post-mastectomy, what would you like most? She said, all I want is a prosthesis and two bras. 
And I have photos of them hanging up in my wall. We were all emotional. She walked out there and in one moment, her whole life had been transformed. Even, so that's the prosthesis and, um, post-mastectomy, it's very good for your balance and to balance yourself out. If you have a bilateral mastectomy, it's also important to have two prostheses fitted, and then we usually fit them with lighter prostheses. And their advantage is that they can choose their size (laughs) of cup, which is quite nice. Um, But it does restore balance and helps with their posture, as well as making them feel whole again. And everyone should have that privilege to be able to feel whole again. As far as even if you're having a lumpectomy, a wide local excision, or immediate reconstruction, your breasts will never be the same as they were pre-diagnosis and pre-surgically. So you have to fit them now with a new bra because the bras that they wore previously are not going to fit adequately. A lot of patients develop lymphedema in their breast and post-radiation develop fibrosis, hardening of the breast tissue. And it's very important that we fit them in the correct, into the correct bra because if the bra doesn't fit and it's too tight, it's going to worsen the lymphedema in the breast as well as the fibrosis. A lot of them complain of a very hard, painful breast. The breast is a very interesting part of our body as women. A, it hangs. So there's a factor of gravity. So if they develop swelling, which you're going to do naturally post-operatively, the swelling is going to go to the base of the breast. And that swelling, which is made up of a high-protein fluid, is going to get incredibly hard. So it's going to get hard and painful. So we've got to look at that. And also, the breast has got no musculature. So there's nothing pumping that fluid. So we have to get them into a bra that fits them correctly and doesn't cause more swelling and more pain. So it supports the operated breast. A lot of my patients go to a retail outlet to buy breasts, it, uh, to buy bras, sorry. It's very, very important that you are fitted correctly because wearing the incorrect bra is actually worse than no bra at all. And we always suggest that they wear a bra that has no wiring in. And the bras that we sell are especially made for patients who have undergone breast surgery. So they're kind to the skin, especially if they have incision lines and they've had radiotherapy. The tissue might be a little bit tender. So the fabric is such that it's hypoallergenic and instead of having a wire, The way the bra is manufactured, the way the fabric is woven, almost acts as a wire. So they have full, complete support. Also, if they have very large breasts, it's important that the strap going over the shoulder is a little bit wider, that it doesn't dig into them, because then they're going to have shoulder problems, which is also a very common problem post-breast cancer, post-surgically. Sue, such useful tips. To talk a little more about exercise, Michelle, how does one go about tailoring an exercise plan for a patient? Generally, um, the patient will always have to come and have an assessment done. I mean, we don't issue any programs or give out any advice or suggestions without an assessment being done. Um, There are cases where other practitioners are issuing out programs. 
which we're always against because I believe everyone should kind of stick within their scope um, and respect that and kind of let each professional do their part, you know, in the team. Um, it doesn't always have to be supervised. The assessment is obviously supervised and done by the particular biokineticist. It also depends on the fragility of the patient, the confidence of the patient, and the experience of the patient. So some patients don't have a caregiver at home or someone to assist with exercises. So then they'll come and, you know, exercise with us until they're strong enough to do things on their own at home. Um, you know, some patients feel really confident they were exercising prior to having, you know, cancer. So they're very experienced and they're kind of quite happy to just get a program that's specific for them and do it at home. Other patients like us to go through, I always go through all their techniques anyway, you know, appropriate breathing, inhalation, exhalation, on exertion, inhalation to prepare, um, you know, things like changing their walking pattern if we are doing cardiovascular activity. So certain patients have developed um, certain armoring patterns or certain protective patterns based on whether they had the incision or, you know, whatever they've had done over the years, not just with the cancer but prior. So we try and correct their gait pattern, their walking patterns, their posture, things like that. So certain things have to be supervised and taught, and then the patient's quite, you know, um, free to go and do their their program at home for a couple of weeks and then come and check in. So it really depends on each patient. Most patients we would see approximately once a week to begin with and then we taper them down to every second week, every third week, once a month um, until they're you know, quite happy to be independent and then just check in with us every couple of months if they get bored or if they have any concerns. And from exercise boosting well-being, we come back to food. Annika, are there any foods that can assist in boosting a cancer patient's immune system? Absolutely. Um, if you look at a well-balanced diet and you do include your adequate amounts of fruits and vegetables per day, um, you will definitely have all the phytochemicals and antioxidants you need to boost your immune system because we do have to realize that cancer patients do have a compromised immune system. And some of them actually... Um, do need to follow a more neutropenic diet kind of guidelines. Yes, it's not always necessary to follow the guidelines as strict, but yes, especially during chemo and radiation, it's crucial to have a look at some of your neutropenic um, guidelines, for instance, to look at um, having a low microbial um, antibacterial or low bacterial diet, which will mean that you need to have a look at how you prepare your food um, and that it's hygienically prepared and very important uh, uh, would definitely be to avoid anything that can actually increase your risk. You don't want to take unpasteurized milk and you don't want to add sushi or un raw eggs. So yes, there's a whole list of guidelines you need to follow. But to come back to your point is, um, is, is there anything you can do you can do to boost your immune system? Yes, um, it's by following an abs- a well-balanced diet, adequate in protein, energy. There's definitely things you need to avoid. You have to, especially during chemo and radiation, you need to avoid alcohol, uh, which is absolutely crucial. Um, uh, alcohol can definitely decrease the effectiveness of your treatment and increase your risk for dehydration and liver damage. And then everybody think more is better. So more supplementation will actually improve your health. But 
it's actually not how it is. The best to consume any form of vitamins, minerals, antioxidants from a well-balanced diet. So in general, dietary supplements as curcumin, which is a component of turmeric, um, we do know St. John's wort, seeds, um, can actually interfere with your cancer treatments. So large amounts of garlic, ginger, ginkgo, biloba, jinxing, licorice, echina, moringa can actually cause potential adverse events. So it's crucial not to um, take it in as tablets. Yes, you can still have your small amounts. If you used to add in a small amount of, for instance, ginger or garlic when you were cooking, that's good. But when you start to consume it in a capsule form, that's when the risks start to develop. Yeah, Annika, is it not correct that if you're undergoing chemotherapy, you should not be doing anything with vitamin C? Absolutely. Yeah, and also the thing Um, of you want your body to be in an alkaline as opposed to an acidic state because alkaline is more healing, especially when it comes to cancer, as opposed to your body being in an acidic state. So that includes sugars and... and as well, and carbs? Absolutely. And just in general, since we're not now talking about vitamin C, um, it's crucial to focus on having, for instance, an orange. Because the absorption of an orange that's, nine, got, got, for instance, 90 milligrams of vitamin C is almost between... 90 and 100 percent but if you now go and have a look at a thousand milligrams vitamin c tablet your absorption drops from six to 18 percent so yes your stores is is, will have at least thousand milligrams but you can't absorb as much definitely even if you're now since it's winter time looking at taking vitamin c tablets um, more is not better if you do have a deficiency then it's going to work for you. But if you look um, at cancer and in treatment, it's not advised to take supplementations, but rather to focus on having a balanced diet, which will actually supply you with enough vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, and phytochemicals. So best to be aware of what we are taking in. And the same awareness extends to exercise. Michelle, When it comes to a cancer patient, if they are experiencing pain in exercising, what would you suggest they do? Well, if they're on their own, I always advise them to cease the activity immediately. If they experience pain on their own, they must stop the activity straight away um, and phone their practitioner. When it's in a session with a a patient, I'm not a fan of no pain, no gain. I actually hate that saying. Um, And there are different levels of symptoms or pain. So for example, if it is someone with cancer, less is always more. You know, we always try and work with how the patient has come in that day. So for example, if they've done um if if last week for example they could walk for fifteen minutes on the treadmill and today they can only manage five, that's what we work with. We work on the patient's tolerance level for that day. I always encourage lots of communication with the patients. They mustn't kind of a, a lot of the patients are used to kind of you know, like Stu was saying earlier with a patient in hospital who hadn't been touched for two weeks. So they're just used to kind of sucking it up and just going through the motions. So I encourage lots of chatting and explaining their emotions and their symptoms to me. For example, we also explain the different kinds of pain that you can get. So, for example, when you're exercising, you'll get a muscle burn 
during exercise, and that's generally from excess lactic acid, which is a metabolic waste product from exercise. Um, we generally don't want to push anyone who's had cancer or is you know, especially during treatment into that phase because it, it takes a lot of energy to get rid of the metabolic waste and you're actually creating microtumor at the muscle tissue, which then has to be healed. So we, we want to prevent the amount of inflammation we're creating. That's really important. If it's someone after cancer and they're a little more functional, we can push them a little bit more, you know, kind of explain to them that, you know, this, this specific pain is probably from their physical activity. Um, Patients, especially someone who's been sedentary for a really long time um, or in hospital for a really long time or it's their first couple of times exercising gets what we call DOMS. So it's delayed onset of muscle soreness, which is pain after exercising. And people will say to them it's lactic acid. It is not lactic acid. Lactic acid is during physical activity. So the delayed onset of muscle soreness or the pain after exercise is from little micro tears in the muscle tissue, which is a normal It's a normal adaptation or a normal um, occurrence you know, when we exercise. But like I said, we don't want to push the patient to that point where they're, you know, already weak and now they're experiencing muscle pain and have to hobble around for a few days. So communication during the session and with their home program is really important. So I give patients exercise diaries that they need to fill in for me. And um, I actually ask the patient to send me a WhatsApp every day. Some of them are really good with it, some aren't, um, or at least once a week so they can touch base with me so that I know that they're actually coping with their program at home if they're not seeing me on a regular basis. Earlier on, you distinguish between what you do and what Sue does, you know, a biokineticist versus a physiotherapist. At which point do you refer a patient onto each discipline? Um, generally, with us, the patients have already seen the physio. If the patient comes in and they've still got some physical restriction, um, they've got facial tightness or that muscles in spasm or their scar tissue, um, and the patient's experiencing symptoms and after an assessment or even a couple of sessions in, they're experiencing severe contraction um, as a result of, for example, doing strength exercise. If the patient is feeling some restriction, I always encourage them to go back to their physio um, or if they're feeling excessive pain, then to go back to their specialist. So maybe that patient needs some needling or strapping or lymph drainage um, or massage just to um, alleviate their symptoms. And what it also does is it speeds up the healing process for us. The more physically um, able the person is, the more we are able to assist them in movements and getting them more functional and improving their quality of life. Sue? Yes. <laughs> I think that the physio's role comes in right at the beginning. When they are waiting to have surgery, when they're having chemotherapy, um, Post-surgically, we get them to the point where it's sort of like end-stage rehab and we would send them to a biokinetosis. It also depends what kind of cancer they've had. So, for example, I have a patient who had a sarcoma in his deltoid muscle. It's at the top of that arm, that nice triangular bulge (laughs) that comes out when you lift your arm up to the side. That's the deltoid muscle. The deltoid muscle was removed and... The very clever reconstructive plastic surgeon did a muscle flap from the latissimus dorsi, which is the muscle that runs down the side and the, well, runs from your spine across to the front of your ribs and down from just sort of below the shoulder blade down to almost your waist. It's a very popular muscle used for muscle flaps. For example, latissimus dorsi flap in breast 
surgery, reconstructive breast surgery. So what they, this clever surgeon did is he took this latissimus dorsi, dissected it, and transferred it to form a deltoid, leading the, leaving the pedicle, the, the insertion at the level of the shoulder. So he brought it from the base of the spine up through the front of the armpit where it's inserted to form a deltoid muscle. So I rehabilitated him as far as scar tissue goes and lymphedema therapy. Once I was happy with that, I'd improved his range to about 70%. Um, I'm not a, a manipulative therapist. I knew I couldn't go any further. So, for example, I referred him to a biokineticist. Most of my work is lymphedema-related. So those patients never really get referred to a biokineticist. I make sure that scar tissue is perfectly mobile, that they're functional in the area that that was operated on and all other surrounding areas adopting a holistic approach are strong enough. And then for end-stage rehab, I would send them to the biokineticist. We are talking about making patients comfortable. A large part of that is advice for patients dealing with the side effects of treatment. Yes, yes, yes. Um, nausea and vomiting is one of your most common um, nutrition-related side effects you can experience. So always I would start by advising them to sip on cool, room temperature, clear fluids. So clear fluids would normally be apple juice or white grape juice in small amounts. And then, of course, to avoid milk products as well as citrus, teas, and coffees. Um, and then very important, to avoid greasy, fried, um, very sweet um, foods such as French fries, pastries, ice creams, and very overly sweet foods. So it will usually make your symptoms much worse. Um, and, of course, very strong odors and smells will also increase your nausea. Um, sometimes, actually, gas-forming foods can make it a little bit worse. Um, so the best would be to eat a bland, soft, easily to digest diet at that stage. And usually, if you become nauseate, nauseated from chemotherapy, it would be best to avoid at least um, eating two hours before the treatments in general. Um, and always, if you're nauseous and vomit, or if you feel nauseous, you'll usually know, oh, I feel more nauseous in the afternoon. So try to consume them, your biggest meal than, let's say, in the morning. So always try to eat when you feel best. Um, and of course, you can eat crackers, dry toast, um, dry cereals in the morning. Yes, ginger works quite well, especially ginger sweets, um, ginger cookies, maybe ginger oats cookies. Yes, ginger beer, but as long as you do make sure that it's non-alcoholic, very important. Like we said, we have to avoid alcohol during treatment. And yes, um, the metallic taste is also quite often, um, you do see quite often. Sometimes it actually um, help, works quite well if you do use plastic utensils to prepare your meals with. Yes, you can eat with plastic spoons. Um, some would actually say, yes, you use marinades and spices to actually mask the effect. But others do believe, no, it doesn't work. Everybody's taste buds is different. So you go with what works best for you. So it's highly individualized. Some actually do believe, well, your meated versions is actually um, 
quite bad for some people and some patients. So they usually do eliminate all kinds of red meats. Yes, in general, cancer patients, they it's recommended not to have more than two red meat portions per week. So it's usually not a problem. They might benefit by actually adding more um, flavorings and season, seasonings to the preparation to actually help with this altered, altered taste and smell that which they do experience. It's absolutely crucial if you do experience any um, nutrition-related side effects that you do go and see a dietitian because she can give you more individualized advice. Um, and like we said, it's normally cancer is not. It's accompanied by lots of other lifestyle diseases. So it's very difficult to give advice with regards to protein if you are, if you, for instance, a, a renal patient as well. So then you have to look at finding the middle way. So it's very important if you do experience weight loss, if you do experience any nutrition related side effect, or if you do have any other chronic disease that you should that you actually do go to a dietitian to make sure that you are optimally fit. And, yeah. Um, Annika, I've actually got a question. We predominantly use hydrotherapy as a modality for a lot of mm. the patients who come in who've had cancer, um, you know, just because it's, it's such a nice medium to work in. But the pool's obviously heated. It's about 33 degrees in summer and about 34 degrees in winter, and it's quite... It's very humid and warm in there. So is there anything we can advise? Because I, I never give any nutritional advice. Because like I said, the, depending on the medication and what they've had done, it's it's a no-go zone for, for me. But is there anything I can advise the patient, or you would advise the patient to drink during the session or after? Because one of the big things with hydrotherapy is the level of dehydration from exercising in the pool as well as the hydrostatic pressure of the water and being in a humid environment. So is there anything that they can drink during or any way to, you know, decrease the rate or level of dehydration post having a hydrotherapy session? For cancer patients, they do need to aim to at least get into the three liters of water intake per day. But then once again, it's individualized. It all depends on if there's any, for instance, kidney failure, heart failure. So yes, but in generally, two to three, two, two to three liters of water. And, and you can look at, and then you need to take in consideration if there was nausea or vomiting, because if there was, then you need to have a look at a rehydrate solution to add, for instance, while they're busy, um, because then they've got an added risk for dehydration. So, Absolutely crucial. Yeah, if they've if they have had any symptoms such as nausea or you know the nausea becomes part and parcel. But if if they have been ill, for example, they've vomited, um, then we don't take them in for a session that day, even on land. Right. So f for us, we like I said, we're very cautious, so we we wouldn't do that. I'm just talking about the average patient who may experience a little bit of like nausea or heat intolerance given the environment. So would it be okay for them to put ginger in their water if that makes them feel better, or strawberries, or general, you know, something to make it more palatable? In general, I would actually advise flavoring your water because then at least you can flavor water without adding sugar. In general, um, flavoring your water with, for instance, any fruits, you can use mint or lemons. 
would be a good idea as long as you make sure that you do have you do drink the water and usually what i've seen is if it, the temperature is also cooler they're more willing to actually drink the water so it might be a good idea to actually if it's summer to actually freeze it and then it can cool down during the day so then at least it's nice and cool and it's more palatable but even to dilute it sometimes with a little bit of fruit juice if you don't feel like having your fruit juice it's always best or to actually look at whole foods and eating your fruits but sometimes it's not a bad idea to flavor your water as long as you if it helps you to keep you hydrated why not and, and, and Annika, I mean, in, in a case of somebody with uh, throat cancers, I mean, they can't eat, they can't swallow. What would you recommend? We'll work closely along with your specialist to assist um, if they actually do need um, f- specialized formulas, which will be adequate in protein, carbohydrates, fats, water, vitamins and minerals. So... You can, there's lots of, like we said, we'll firstly see orally. So we'll see if we can actually thicken your fluids, if it will maybe help, if it will help to drink with a straw, um, to add maybe sauces and gravies to dried fruit. Um, exper- we'll experiment with consistency. And definitely, in re- if there's no, you can't swallow, we'll consider, um, yes, if you look at a nasogastric tube or pick, it will only be for a short period of time. But if it actually contributes and you can't swallow, we'll actually consider putting in a, a peck feeding where there will be basically it's a small, um, it's basically feeding via a tube into your stomach in very easy terms. So then there's, then we basically bypass your, um, Swallowing processes. So yes, there's many ways to address the problem, um, but like we said, it's highly individualized. We'll assess with with a doc, with a specialist, if it's actually necessary to use a peck feeding or to actually use enteral feeding. First, would always be orally. Just to pick up. On three points. First of all, the head and neck cancers. I see a lot of head and neck cancers because most of them have had radiation or removal of um, lymph nodes, so they develop lymphedema. And they the treatment often is followed with radiotherapy. So as a belt embraces, they obliterate the surrounding lymph nodes with a squamous cell, which is the most common kind of cancer a head and neck cancer can spread to. Oral care is very important. So I guide them as to what they eat. So because of the radiotherapy, the buccal mucosa, the skin of your mouth, has become very frail. And because your lymph system has been obliterated, your lymph system is part of your immune system. So lymph nodes are alarm centers for infection. Your tonsils are lymph nodes. All right. So because that has been obliterated, you're more prone to develop infections in the area that the lymph nodes drain. So mouth cancers, oral and neck, they remove the, the nodes in your neck, sometimes the parotid gland, the node, lymph node in front of your ears. So in that area, your resistance is lowered as well as the skin becoming very frail post-radiotherapy. 
what they eat and how they eat is important. Besides the fact that they don't want to eat, they suffer from a dry mouth, which is a terrible syndrome to experience. So they should drink as much as possible. I tell them to suck something sour. And then there are all sorts of preparations available for these patients, like toothpaste and chewing gum. I won't mention the brand, but they just need to go into Dischem and it's all readily available for them. Their dental care is vital. After every meal, they should floss their teeth, but gently remembering that the gum is frail. Brush their teeth with an extremely, extremely soft toothbrush. Not eat anything sharp like piece of toast. Chew their food well and chew them their food. If they find their mouth is dry and they don't have sufficient saliva, add some fluid to what they're eating that when they chew, in order to swallow, whatever they're chewing can form a nice ball, what we call a bolus, so it's more easily, they're more easily able to swallow it. So that, I do a lot of education when it comes to these patients. The other thing I wanted to mention was, as far as hydrotherapy goes, because a lot of my patients have lymphedema, which is the swelling of the limbs, Hydrotherapy can play a very important part in the rehabilitation. One of the ways in which we treat lymphedema is by compression. And you should always have more compression further away distally. So you have more compression around the hand or the foot as opposed to the rest of, rest of the limb. When you immerse a limb perpendicular in the water, like if you're standing in water, the hydrostatic pressure The deeper you go, the more it is. So hydrotherapy plays can play a huge role in the rehabilitation of lymphedema. And just the other thing I wanted to add was that patients with lymphedema should keep their sodium intake to an absolute limit because lymphedema is a retention of a high-protein fluid in your body, which causes the swelling. If they're taking more sodium, they're absorbing more fluid, which is exacerbating the lymphedema. We encourage them to drink at least six to eight glasses of water a day. You should drink 30 mils of water per kilogram. That's your daily allowance. Daily allowance. And also these patients should avoid natural diuretics like tea, coffee, alcohol, and fizzy drinks. So not more of than, not more than three drinks of a combination of those drinks per day. I always say you can have one glass of wine a day, but not seven on one day. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies, what are the resources that you would recommend, you know, for people to access any information that you find crucial? I think, <laughs> you know, everyone wants to become Dr. Google, get their PhD in Google, and I think that can be dangerous. There are various websites that you can access, which will give you a host of information. Nowadays, a lot of the specialists work in teams, and everyone has someone to recommend you to who will give you added information. And I think the best is not to listen to everyone, because, you know, as soon as you diagnosed, everyone you know has had that condition, or their aunt or their granny, but follow one person or one form, one resource 
that's going to become your mentor. It's sort of like almost natural to just go, go like all over the place because you're so vulnerable and you're so desperate. So I think choose one resource or one doctor or one person that you go to. But there's plenty out there. Um, there's a few websites my patients do ask me, um, and this isn't uh, my advice at all. It's just information that's available out there. So one of them is obviously cancer.org, um, breastcancer.org, cancer.gov, uh, cancerresearchuk.org, where they're publishing you know new articles and research, and uh, www.nccn.org, which is a national comprehensive cancer network. So these are, you know, doctors and healthcare practitioners that are uh, posting information that's just relevant for patients. And there's nice PDF documents and there's nice infograms um, and things that if, you know, patients are a bit scared, they can go and get, you know, a more reputable source rather than, like Sue says, Dr. Google, and you get these really scary photos and um, everyone's diagnosing themselves. So just nice to have a read. And Annika? What? Well, like I think if, if you've covered the most, um, what I can add is um, if you look at breast cancer, you can look at the Breast Health Foundation. Um, and also the Pink Parasol um, is project is also something to have a look at because there you can locate all the practitioners that focuses on cancer specifically. And if you do need advice, you can actually type in um you can go to one of the tabs and you can decide who you want to ask questions for, which is actually crucial. So then you can instantly get the correct advice from a professional. From a nutritional point of view. Nutritional, from a physiotherapist, from a doctor, from complementary health. So, yes, all the practitioners you can actually do ask, including me as well. Ladies, thank you so much for your education and enlightenment. Thank you. Thank you. It's been great. We've been talking all about healthy living during cancer treatment and beyond. To listen to all the episodes in our 10-part oncology podcast series, go to discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts. In our next episode, we explore palliative care with top medical experts who will explain just how relevant this sort of care is to ensuring quality of life for those on a cancer journey. Palliative care can make a huge difference in supporting a cancer patient and their loved ones. All brought to you by Discovery. This is cliffcentral.com.